Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 224, recorded December 5th, 2015. So today we're continuing the John Byrne Romulan Trilogy series with uh, Star Trek Romulan's Schism. Yeah, pretty pretty cool. I, I'm really enjoying this. And uh, although, and one of the things I'm kind of enjoying about it is Byrne's favorite little hobby, which is to explain things from the Star the Taws TV show. Um, it's like he was sitting there watching the episode and he says, well, you know, I wonder exactly why the Romulans came out of nowhere and started bothering Starfleet and attacking uh, Kirk in uh, Balance of Terror. Right. Or other kind of things that might have motivated uh, Romulans popping up on an episode. Um, and doing things. And uh, very cool that there's a lot of explanation going on what was happening on the other side of the fence from the Federation. And that's one thing I really like about this this trilogy. And you forgot the biggest one. Why did the Romulans start using Klingon design ships? Uh, I, I, I could, I, there are many I could list. <laughs> but, but definitely that's, that's one number of one. <laughs> what? Oh, well, okay. Yeah, oh, that's an important one. That is definitely yeah. an important one. Yeah, and what I really liked about this one is that it actually starts actually bringing in, you know, a few things from the movie era. So, you know, what 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 happened between the end of season three up to the the movie era a little bit, which yeah. was, I thought was really cool. Yeah. So he engage again. He's engaging in things kind of like you like to engage in, right? Explaining he things. Gets paid for it. Exactly. Probably plenty. What a job. Wouldn't it be great? God. And actually be that as good as he is at it. Wow. Right. Yeah. No, that absolutely. would be amazing. Anyway. Yeah, so I I thoroughly enjoyed the th- they're not perfect, but I th- I thoroughly enjoyed the three comics. Right. Yeah, I thought it was a nice little ending to what he started up in the Alien Spotlight and mm-hmm. the um uh Hollow Crown that we we did last week. Right. Yep. So you want to go ahead and jump into issue number one of Schism? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, there's no new news like with the new movie or anything, right? Yeah, uh, nope. No. Star Trek Beyond. It's it's still chugging along. Exactly. Good. Good. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to do the synopsis for the uh, number one Romulan's Romulan's Schism number one, published date September 2009. Writer and art, John Byrne. Colors by Loverne Klinslerski. Letterer, Neil Yataki. Editor, Chris Rial. The primary cover features a Romulan, Captain Kor, and Pike's former first officer that currently holds the rank of Commodore. Above each of them are their ships against a star field. Large fuchsia-colored font tells us that this is Star Trek, and the comic title is Romulan's Schism. Note that Kor and his ship 
are in the center of this cover. And that does make a difference. The cover is by John Byrne. The retail incentive cover is almost identical to the uh, normal cover I just described, but it's called the Virgin cover since there since the title is not present at the top. The bumpy-headed leader of the Klingon Empire states his displeasure with Captain Kor. The plan to use the Romulans to get around the Organians and start a war with the Federation has yet to achieve its goals. Kor explains that the unanticipated marriage of their puppet Romulan Praetor has delayed some planned events, but has not stopped them. He needs more time to let them take their normal course. The Emperor yields the floor to his bumpy-headed daughter, who states confidently she thinks the plan is sound and they should give it more time. The Emperor gives Kor one more week, but not an hour more. Outside the regal chambers, Kor tells Koloth it's his plan and he had better make it work. Kor leaves Kronos, bound for Romulus, while Koloth stays behind to shore up their support in the Imperial chambers, let's say. Koloth is doing the horizontal bop in a most violent way with the Emperor's daughter. Meanwhile, Captain Kor is approaching the Romulan neutral zone and preparing to activate their cloaking device when a Federation cruiser comes out of nowhere and fires on them. Their starboard nacelle takes a hit. How did they not see that ship? To their surprise and dismay, the Federation ship disappears from view before their very eyes. Starfleet has a cloaking device! Kor conjectures the Federation captain probably thought they were Romulans, since they are so close to the border and their ship is unmarked. They jettison their ruined nacelle and activate their cloak. Later, one of Kor's underlings enter the Romulan Praetor's office and tells him and his new, new, newly pregnant bride that a cloaked Federation vessel attacked Kor's ship. The underling asks where a Federation ship could have obtained the cloaking device. The Praetor says they do not make a habit of sharing their military tech with anyone but the Klingons. Scene shifts to a Constitution-class Starfleet vessel, commanded by a familiar-looking female com Commodore. They are trying to track the ship they attacked while dealing with the adverse effects of the cloaking of the cloak on the ship's systems. The cloak's power drain is huge, as they were warned. A senior officer tells the Commodore he is heading down to engineering to coax the cloak to behave. The Commodore stops him and tells him she has an idea. On the Klingon vessel, Kor witnesses the Constitution-class vessel drop its cloak. His weapons officer wants to target it immediately. Kor says not yet. This could be a trap. Meanwhile on Kronos, Koloth is smoking a pipe in his birthday suit while the Emperor's daughter puts high boots on and nothing more. They talk about the possible coup with the princess taking power from her father, Koloth, to be at her side as her consort. They discuss the plan to get around the Organian restrictions by attacking Federation ships in unmarked D7 ships that the Klingons think all will assume are Romulan. The Emperor's daughter says the Organians have forgotten about them. They no longer care what we or the Federation does. 
Koloss says perhaps, but better to err on the side of safety. With fiery looks in their eyes, they get horizontal and have at it again. Meanwhile, in the cloaked Klingon ship, Kor is using the ship's gravity generators as a means of moving the ship into position to fire on the uncloaked Federation ship. On Romulus, Emperor Gaius is speaking to his pregnant wife, Aline. She is questioning his continuing devotion to the alliance with the Klingons. She says the Klingons act more like an occupying force than like allies. She says the people see that the Klingons are not friends. Why doesn't he? He says they have benefited from the exchange of technology, the superior Klingon ship design. He says in the long run, the Romulan flag will wave alone in their skies, but for now their alliance stands. She says it's due to his obsession with the Federation captain that killed Gaius's father. The Emperor bids his wife farewell and departs for their latest and greatest ship. He will take the ship and confront the demon of his obsession. After the Emperor is gone, he says with acceptance of the situation that he will not return. On Kronos, Koloth is now dressed, is approached by one of his men that informs him that Kor reports he is under attack by a Federation ship. Kor thinks the Federation captain is mistaking the unmarked ship for a Romulan ship. They say this might be the opportunity they have been waiting for. Unknown to Koloth, they are being watched by a concealed camera. It's the Emperor, who is wary of his daughter's seemingly endless schemes. An underling asks if the Emperor wants Koloth to be arrested. He replies, no, let him dig his own grave a little deeper. We may yet be able to snare the ungrateful child in the same web. Later on a ship, Koloth orders a heading for the neutral zone. Normal speed. There's no reason for us to hurry. Meanwhile, at the neutral zone, Kor and his bridge crew think they have the Federation captain where they want him. Their shields are down, no power to weapons, and dead in space. They close in for the kill. But wait, their shields are back up. They're moving. They fire on the D-7. The forward portion of the Klingon ship breaks away from the rest of the damaged ship. Kor actually is able to steer it into the Yorktown's upper saucer section. The impact looks like it directly hit the bridge. To be continued. All right, so who fired on who? Because I thought that the uh, the shields just cut the the other ship in half when they when they snapped them on and they were too close. Okay, so this entire sequence at the end of the book takes place over two pages, I assume, because I'm using the, um, the CBR file. And there's a lot going on. So they've got one big picture, um, which forms the background. And then they've got two other sets of, of panels that are going. Um, and it's not, in my opinion, it is not clear at all what happens. But this, my interpretation is they were, um, the Klingons were attacking. They came in close, which is exactly what the, what, uh, the Commodore wanted them to do. 
and then they were able to <clears throat> to fire on them and destroy the uh, the back portion of the um, the star drive section of the Klingon ship, and then they were able to somehow guide the what's left of it, the forward section, into mm-hmm. the Yorktown's bridge. Now you're saying that the shields actually sliced the front part of the ship. Well, looking at the picture, that's what it kind of looked like because you don't right. see any fire coming from the Yorktown, and you don't see you don't see the engines of the Klingon ship damaged at all. It's just well, it only right has one. The it only has one of, engine. Yeah, so so the one yeah. nacelle cell was gone from an earlier attack. Right, right, right. Um, okay, okay. Right. So, so well, you're well, you're right, but it's like ugh. okay, right. Well, in in the dialogue balloon. They do tell Core that they've fired on the aft section and it's exploding. Ugh. So I guess they right. did fire. They just didn't depict it in the in the art. The, the um, if there's a ding that I'm going to give this comic, one of the things is this entire last section is confusing, and you just got to go with it, right? Because the last page is cool, where it shows the Klingon, the forward section of the Klingon ship actually impact the upper portion of the saucer section of the Yorktown. That is way cool. And it's like, wow, what a way to end a comic. But what leads up to it is very confusing. Right. Interesting. So the shields, rather than being emitted from the Yorktown outward to form uh, some kind of electromagnetic barrier, actually turns on already formed outside of the ship and has the ability to slice through things. Yeah. No. Like a ship neck. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, that, that's what it says. It says their shields, <clears throat> they've activated their shields. We've been cut in half. Oh my God. He actually, I mean, said he actually that? says that. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, he does. You're right. Okay, fine. Okay. So that's what I thought happened. Okay. And, but but you're right. No, no. Well, it's a good distance <clears throat> away from the ship. It's not like they were like in between the nacelles when this happened. They're still behind them. Oh, they're behind them. Um, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So it's all great spectacle, but something that I think Byrne does, and I and it may be the same kind of thing that J.J. Abrams does. They look at the end result of how cool something is, and then they will they will make compromises in how to get to that point. And I definitely think the concept that shields form outside of the sh- I mean way outside the ship uh, and have the ability to c- to cut metal, I think that is hard to believe. But it does allow for the scenario where the front portion of the Klingon D7 is is detached from the rest of the ship and is able to smash into the Yorktown. Right. Okay. Okay, good. I, I didn't get that. So. And I was not satisfied with my explanation of what went on, but I just went with it. Right. Yeah, and, and one thing about your synopsis that, that uh, I, I don't think was quite right was... Okay. When the Praetor leaves, it's his wife that says he won't be coming back. Not yeah, him. that's what... Oh. You said he, so I, it sounded like you were saying the Praetor was leaving and saying he wasn't going to come back. Oh, did I say that? Yeah. Yeah, that's not what I wrote. Right, okay. okay. <laughs> so I misspoke. Okay, I just wanted to make sure, because 
<clears throat> I had to go back and reread it because I was like, oh, well, maybe I put the word balloons in my head in the wrong direction. No. But yeah, there was I didn't put everything in because, as you say, I'm too long with my synopsis as it is. I've never but said that. But it is uh, the queen that's sitting there with her handmaidens or whatever that uh, that says that. Right. And uh, basically, Gaius is Captain Ahab and Kirk's that Moby Dick, and he is obsessed. Which is really too bad, because he's got everything going for him. <laughs> yeah, he does. He <laughs> he's the emperor, empire. he's got a beautiful wife, he's got a kid on the way, it's like, and he's got, uh, anyway, he's given up an awful lot of stuff just for the uh, vengeance, right. but whatever. Yeah. So, uh, I liked the, the symmetry between, you know, with Koloth and his girl, and the Praetor and his, and his wife, where... Oh. You know, like in the like one, one picture, she's wearing a, a a blanket instead of in and you know she's not wearing anything else but a blanket, and then she takes it off, and then it flashes over to the emperor, the praetor, and he's taking off his cape while he's talking to uh, the wife and stuff like that. So, and then the next page, it's Koloth getting dressed, which kind of looks just like uh, the praetor when he was taken off his his cape and stuff. So it was kind of cool how every time you turn the page, it was a very similar laid out picture page, uh, but it was the, the different uh, scenarios. It was kind of cool. I didn't see that at all. Now that you mention it, cool, but I did not notice that one bit. Interesting. Cool. So I liked the, uh, the bumpy headed Klingons making their appearance. Yes. So that was very cool. So here, and maybe this is the first one, maybe, maybe there's been some other ones, but this is the first story that I recall seeing where there is a mixture of bumpy-headed and smooth-headed Klingons in the same story. Um, I was thinking that we've read some other IDW stuff uh, that, that had it, but I know that I have, so I don't know as far as when these came out, if this one came out first, but right. I know there has been some other ones. Cool. I, I don't remember it. Seeing it myself. Um, so, this accepts... Okay, so this just... There are multiple theories why that try to explain the two different flavors of Klingons. And uh, genetic mutation, I guess, is the one they talked about in, um, in Deep Space Nine, right? I don't think they mentioned it at all in Deep Space Nine. It was... Um... Oh, I think they did. So, uh, it was actually Worf that said it he was just... uh, a genetic mutation. We don't uh, want to he talk did, about he it. Did, he doesn't say anything. He says, I, we don't talk about it. That's no, no, no. He did. He did. No, he didn't. We have, a di- we have a different... We have a difference of opinion. tribulations, right? I don't remember the name of the episode. But, but yeah, that's pro- yeah, that is it. So, that's one where uh, O'Brien and... Odo are at the the table with them, and they look mm-hmm. over, and then there's Klingons next to them, but the right. the Federation guys don't even recognize them as right. Klingons. And then, and then, uh, then actually, Worf does say it: mutation, and we don't like to talk about it. I don't remember the mutation part, but um, well, whatever. Okay, fine. You might be right. Will 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 agree <laughs> to disagree. The main point is there's multiple theories out there that have been advanced. Um. Right. And but so, it if it was in, mutations, in all answered in Enterprise. Uh, that was another episode. That was the one with Spiner, right? 
Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Where he played Noonien Singh soon, whatever. Soon. Um. So there were other theories that had said, oh, well, there's always been like two quote species or whatever on the planet. It's just that different ones are in dominance uh, at different periods in time. So whatever. Uh, right. But anyway, so this doesn't propose to explain it, but why there, whether there's two, ra- two races on the same planet or maybe part of the Klingon whatever, um, or whether it is mutation, which I think mutation is the right answer or has been established in several things, including Deep Space Nine. Um, it's interesting to actually see them. And so if there was mutation going on, so what was this? The, the beginning of the mutations? Um, now, again, I think the Enterprise episode actually, well, of course, was in, was in the past. And was that, did they depict where that was beginning to happen? Well, the Klingons uh, had some sort of uh, plague or something that they were all going to be wiped out. So yeah. Noonie and Zung created a, a – uh, they changed them at the genetic DNA level to make them look human. But it would save it would save their species, but it would make them look human. And so uh, all the Klingons would, would change to look like the human version. But Archer oh. does say or Flocks or somebody says that – you know, in a hundred years, they would revert back to their their normal their normal look, ah! <laughs> or something like that. So he, he oh, did, so that was the he explanation. Did quantify that it it would only be a temporary thing. Fascinating, because I thought it was like they looked like humans, and then they morphed into bumpy heads. Um, but actually, they were bumpy heads, morphed into human look, and then went back to bumpy heads. Fascinating. Okay. Exactly. According, according to okay, what was on the show, which, which we have to take as canon. Oh, it, that is more canon than anything. Okay, fine. So, so they were in their process of reverting back to their original state in at this, this ep- point. In this issue, in, the, in yeah, these sure. issues. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, like I said, to. that's one thing about the John Byrne stuff that that I, I'm not always a big fan of is that he he really only takes what was in the original series. And doesn't really uh, acknowledge what was in Enterprise or Deep Space Nine or anything like that. So, I mean, remember we were talking about his alternate universe stuff in the um, New Visions, you know, and he right. when in his alt- in his Mirror Universe episode, it, it doesn't acknowledge anything that was going that uh, Mira, Kira, and them talked about in sure. the Deep Space Nine Mirror episode. So. Sure, sure, you know. So, has Byrne ever done a Next Gen or a Deep Space Nine story, or is it always Taz? Now that I think about it, it's like I can't think of an example where it was non-Taws and that he's done. I, I, I'm, I agree. I think he's only done Taws stuff. How interesting! <laughs> yeah. Well, he did a yeah, he did a Gary Seven thing, but that again is but was that was Taws. Taws. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Huh. Okay. Well, fine. Um. So I was really, I was really digging on the Yorktown pop, popping out of nowhere. Uh, with the cloaking device, apparently the one stolen by by Kirk. Although we don't know that at this point, I don't think they said that. I th- we find out a lot more out in the next issue. But um, I thought that was very cool. 
Because um, yep. here all this stuff is happening. All these machinations are happening between the Romulans and the Klingons with their own agendas where, it, you know, in public they're saying, oh, we're working together. But they all have their own things going on and they're all bad for the Federation. And then it's like, oh, well, the Federation's just sitting around, no idea what's going on, you know. La, 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 la. And then all of a sudden, boom, you've got a Federation ship right in their face with the cloaking device uh, taking out Core's ship. I think that's great. Yeah, no, it was really cool. Yeah, that was all very cool. Um, it's just, how did all that happen? At the end of this <laughs> issue, I was going, how did they know to do that? How did they know where Core's ship was? They came out of nowhere. How did they? Eh? Anyway. And it was cool seeing number one as. Oh. That was fantastic. Yeah. I love that. That was wonderful. Although I got to ask, is it common for Commodores to be commanding starships? I thought they were, that was more a captain's thing. Yeah, but I mean, we've seen admirals take over ships. So. Well, yeah, but Kirk is <laughs> unusual. And that's right. definitely not normal. But yeah, it's usually like, Commodore is in charge of a, a small fleet, right? So yeah, or, or a space would... station or something. Right. So, uh, not a ship. You're usually a captain if you're in charge of a ship. So, okay, right. fine, fine. But uh, uh, we might get that answer later. Ooh. So um, I did like – all right. So one of the things that uh, that changed in this story, the, these three issues that contradict what was in the previous issues that John Byrne did was the – what happens when a ship is cloaked. Here, people are talking, they're running around, they're doing all kinds of stuff inside the ship while it's cloaked, yeah. and yet the other people can't hear it, where that was uh. a plot point in The Balance of Terror, and it was a plot point in the last issue, where even yep. though you're cloaked, if you make too much noise, the people out in space can still hear you. So I do like <laughs> this better, because there shouldn't be any sound in space. No, there shouldn't be. But since he did acknowledge it last in the last series, that it does seem odd that it's just completely glossed over in this one. Yeah. And it should be glossed over. How ridiculous. We discussed that last time. Right. Yeah, so when I was reading this, and they started talking about um, uh, making modifications to the uh, gravity, the, the artificial gravity or something like that, mm -hmm. um, I took it, you know, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, cool, this is it, them explaining... They somehow using the artificial gravity to contain the sound or something like that, but uh, that's not the case. They were using it to propel themselves sneakily. So sneakily. So I was about to get really excited that they that John Byrne explained why the sound is not an issue anymore on cloaked ships, but he did not. Huh. Cool. Well. Anything oh. else? Yeah, I have another thing to mention about uh, the bumpy-headed versus smooth-headed Klingons. The idea that they were bumpy-headed, then became human-like, then went back to being bumpy-headed, explains why um, the Kalos clone in TNG, mm -hmm. you know, when he came back, that he had bumpy heads. That makes a lot more sense. Doesn't explain why the Kalos in the... Uh... In the original series, had a smooth head when he was fighting Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so the rock creature probably knew. He's like, oh, well, they're not going to be used to seeing bumpy-headed Klingons, so we better make it. <laughs> no, that's a very good point. Because I was originally thinking, until you gave me this revelation from Enterprise, 
or reminded me of it. It has been a long time since I watched that episode. Um, I was completely thinking that 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 TNG episode is ridiculous because if they were smooth and then they had genetic mutation that made them bumpy headed, then how could Kalis be smooth headed? But now, but now you've not only opened my eyes to that being okay, but you've again flipped it again, bringing up the um, the Taz episode, whatever that one's name was. So very cool. Yeah, well, like you said, uh, can't can't think too hard about them. Otherwise, you're gonna find holes. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So, just real quick, in defense of the smooth-headed uh, Kalis, it's kind of the way we see like Jesus being depicted now. So, ah! He's blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and probably wasn't really that way in, in real life. But in in a lot of art and depictions of him, that's the way he looks. So maybe it's the same way with the Klingons. Well, and that's a good point because um, not necessarily... So the the rock creatures that set that whole scenario up, um, mm-hmm. what do they know about Klingons? They know about Klingons from um, the Federation people's minds, right? Well, were there Klingons there too? Okay, well that... Okay, fine. So there you go. Well, damn, you're ruining that for me. <laughs> so uh, I'm ruin anything for you. <laughs> well, how do they know about these characters from the past? Uh, Lincoln, who was supposed to be Jesus, apparently. Uh, how do they know about Lincoln? Well, they knew about Lincoln because they read Kirk's mind, probably, or one of the one of the humans, and right. so they they figured out what he looked like based on what was inside Kirk's mind. And how they know what the Klingons look like. Well, I was saying they read the humans' minds again. But you're right. There was a Klingon, a real Klingon in there. So wouldn't you think that the Klingon would have thought about or remembered or seen depictions of him more as he really was? Uh, But I guess it's back to your point about uh, Jesus being usually depicted as a white guy. Right. Which really wouldn't have been appropriate for the time and place where all that took place. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they'd already gone a hundred years of their whole culture being smooth headed. Uh-huh. They probably don't remember that they used to be bumpy headed. Oh, come on. They not remember. <laughs> well, maybe at the time the rock creature was scanning his brain, they weren't thinking of it. Exactly. <laughs> he was thinking back to that painting over his sainted mother's bed. Right. Of... Smooth head and all. Says smooth head, Kalis. Making the fir- first batleth, you know, in the stained glass. <laughs> exactly. Depiction. All right. Exactly. You ready to move on, sir? Um, I just want to say that I was surprised about Koloth being Joe Gigolo. Oh, man, yeah. With, with the, the emperor's daughter. With the emperor's Woo! daughter. Ooh, aim high. Anyway, um, you know, K- Koloth, so... I don't remember Koloth from the one episode, Trouble with Tribbles. Did he pop up again? Nope. In Taz? Okay, yeah, just the one place. For some guy that just popped up once and was a total failure, he is doing all <laughs> kinds of stuff in all these burn things. Yeah, I mean, go-to guy. you ain't kidding. I mean, he's got the plans. He's making it with the, uh, with the Emperor's daughter. Uh, and except for the bumpy head, she's not bad looking. Uh... And, Nothing wrong with the bumpy head. 
okay, fine. Um, anyway, but he's quite a slimy, ambitious trickster. Wow. Anyway, he's kind of like the Loki. Did I say that before? Um, right. I don't think so. He's uh, he's pretty clever. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll be honest. The the Emperor's daughter thing was a surprise to me. Yeah. But she, but the fact that she is such a surprisingly power hungry individual is amazing. I mean, she is no problem with killing her father. So, right, whatever. Yeah, I was trying to fit this this uh, Klingon leader with you know Chancellor Glorgon or whatever his name was in Star Trek Six. Uh huh. But I don't. I'm pretty sure it's not the same guy. Um. What? Wait, uh, Chancellor Gorkon? Yeah. This is not Chancellor Gorkon, right? Oh, you mean the actor? Or the looks no, of the, him? the character. Because we never That's... saw the Chancellor of the Klingon Empire until him, right? Uh, I don't... I don't think so. Um... Oh, okay. Chancellor Gorkon is one thing. But Emperor... I mean, this guy's an Emperor, right? I mean, he calls himself some Kalis the whatever, right? Oh, does he? I, I, thought he, I thought he was Emperor, not Chancellor. What's the difference? Well, Emperor is like a king. Total power. You're in charge of everything. Where Chancellor, I thought, was more like a president. Where he, he, he's like voted in, or it's not like a lifetime thing. And he doesn't have, ulti- uh, he doesn't have, he doesn't have ultimate power. He doesn't have all the power. Mm. I mean, there's a political structure in place, which I thought that whole so the thing. The Klingon Empire has both. Well, I think so. I mean, they must. I mean, isn't a chancellor more like the guy that takes care, the leader that takes care of all of the uh, like political stuff and a lot of the leadership stuff? Uh, like maybe the uh, the prime minister in England uh, versus the uh, the Queen of England, right? The only thing is, the emperor definitely in this epi- or in in this comic has seems to have all the power. Right. So I really don't know how much a, a chancellor would be doing, or if there even would be one in a situation where you've got such a strong emperor. Anyway. All right. Well. Oh well. There goes that idea. Well, okay. That's all I have to say about this one. <laughs> all right. Then let's move on to the next. Excellent. All right, so this is entitled uh, Romulan Schisms Number Two. Did you get the dates when these came out? October two thousand nine. This one came out October two thousand nine. Uh, the writing and art staff is all the same from issue number one. Uh, the cover shows, uh, and I'm going to call her Commodore Number One because they never give her a name. So it shows Commodore Number One looking right at the reader. Uh, and we see a original series era Klingon and Romulan standing to either side of her in complete profile, looking right at her. Above the trio, we see one of each uh, of their ships. So we see a uh, Romulan. It's a Klingon D7 painted as a Romulan ship. We see a Constitution-class ship, and then we see a normal Klingon T7. So this story starts off uh, sometime prior to the events of the last issue. Commodore number one is receiving orders to take the Yorktown to the neutral zone and spy on incoming ships with the newly acquired cloaking device that Kirk had stolen for them. Uh, 
She does not agree with this. Uh, she does not think that it's in the spirit of the Starfleet Charter, but she will do what she's assigned to do. Once aboard her ship, she gets to know her new crew, and they make their way to Starbase NZMB-108, which is a base built directly on an asteroid. Once they arrive, they have a pleasant dinner with the commander of the station when they are interrupted by a report that a large Romulan fleet is incoming. The Romulan fleet consists of at least a dozen repainted Klingon D7s. As they get closer, the ships fade away in their cloaking fields. Commodore number one returns to the Yorktown and orders them to go to cloak as well. Elsewhere on Romulus, Praetor Gaius is shown his newly minted ship. It is a much larger version of the original Romulan bird of prey that his father was testing when he died way back in the original series episode, Balance of Terror. The new ship is even named after his father, and the Praetor takes her out on her maiden voyage. Back in the neutral zone, Commodore number one orders the cloaking device to blink to draw the attention of the Romulans. It works, and soon they are surrounded by Romulan ships. The Romulans try a weird gas trick to try to find where the Yorktown is cloaked. The Commodore is able to avoid it, and is able to fire and strike three of the Romulan cloaked ships. The Romulans destroy at least one of their own ships to try to use the explosion's shockwave as a type of radar to find the cloaked Federation ship. The Yorktown is damaged, and the Commodore orders a retreat. Once safely away, they stumble across yet another D7-class ship. This one is not painted the same way, but they just assume that it's also a Romulan ship, and she orders them to fire. And then this leads into the events of issue number one. Later, Koloth's ship arrives at the destination where he was to meet with Kor's ship. He is informed that the Klingon princess has stowed away on her lover's ship. They are not able to speak much before the bridge crewman informs them that they found the wreckage of a nearby Klingon ship. They are able to quickly deduce that it is indeed Kor's ship. But where is the Yorktown that we saw it crashing into in issue number one? These answers and more will be answered in the next thrilling issue. Bum, bum, bum. Aha! So this is like a uh, Tarantino movie or something. Oh, right. <clears throat> so we're kind of jumping back and forth in time. And like I might have mentioned in the last one, I kind of like how like you're, you're told one story. And then when, you're, when the story's told, it's like all these questions flow into your head. It's like, well, how did that happen? And how did that happen? Whatever. And then, then come, here comes the next issue and basically explains most, at least, all those questions that came up in your mind because it takes place directly prior to the events of the first issue. Right. Yeah, now, when you were doing your synopsis for issue number one, you mentioned, yeah. you know, the person that was in the middle of the three figures yes. looking at the, the reader. Yes. And I did not catch, when I first read these three, that yep. it's the one in the middle is, is the, uh, you know, basically that issue is their story. It, it's mostly told from their viewpoint, but not exclusively. Right, not exclusively. Right. And I thought that was really interesting. Exactly. So, right. So the first one was 
pretty much told from Core's standpoint. Definitely the battle at the end. In this one, very much you're seeing things from the, uh, the Commodore's standpoint. Right. And then finally, in number three, we'll get another viewpoint. Guess what it is? Well, you know. <laughs> Guess out there. <laughs> yes, it's the Praetor. Although I got to say, uh, in the different covers, you know, in, in cover number two, it shows an old Romulan. He's off on the right in mostly profile. And that's not the Praetor. Because um, the Praetor is a young guy. Right. Yeah, it's the it's the the guy that was with the Praetor when they commissioned the new ship. Right. So it's it's an older guy. Um so it's always the Commodore, it's always core on these covers, but they keep ju- they seem to be jumping around a little bit as far as which Romulan is on the cover. Right. I think the first issue that pretty much is the Praetor. I'm, I think it's the Praetor. It's a, it's a younger Romulan. Right. Um, and then the final one, you know it's the Praetor because he's even in the captain's uniform and that kind of stuff that he got into when he got but, into his... But he does look older. He looks more like his father right. in Balance of Terror. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Anyway, Anyways, so, the, so... so the, the jumping around can be a bit disconcerting, but I, 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 I like it. It's different. Yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan, uh, but I mean, uh, I, now that you mentioned the whole, you know, Quentin Tarantino type s- storytelling method, uh, it's kind of growing on me a little bit. Right. I mean, I'll admit it's gimmicky. It's a it's a bit gimmicky if it's not done well, but it's almost like um, like what J.J. Abrams does. He likes to set up these little mysteries, and then like earlier in the in the stories, and then you find out what the mysteries are by the end of the movie. So right. it's a little like that too when they're jumping around in time like that. So yeah. mystery, curiosity, and then boom, here's the payoff. Anyway. Uh so um I at the beginning I like the, the conflict here going on. Um where within where the Starfleet? Where, within Starfleet. So we got Commodore the Commodore, who is um, – and Griggs, Admiral Griggs, who are saying, you know, they shouldn't take such an aggressive stand against the Romulans. Uh, I mean, they, they don't want to become the Romulans. This is not this is not Starfleet style. This is not the Federation style to be aggressively attacking people. Um, but the other members, the other admirals uh, of the – well, I guess the, the head of Starfleet or whatever, um, they're like, no, we really need to do this. They're on the move. We know we have enough intelligence to know things are going on. Um, I like that conflict. I like the idea that they weren't all like, yes, sir. How high can I jump, sir? Right. So I kind of like that. Yeah. And, but ultimately she did do it though. I mean, Oh, of course she did it. She still followed orders. But, But that's good. They're showing that underlings can assert their opinion and make their warnings, and they can be heard, but in the end, it's chain of command. Right. So, so I like that. that. That was good. That was good. And I didn't recognize the the guy. So you, you the uh, the other admiral, you knew Griggs. Yeah, Griggs. Well, I just they just said it. Oh, okay. okay. In the book, I, I I never saw him before. Okay, I thought well maybe he was a callback too. 
Uh, I don't think guy. so, but I don't think so, but maybe. Okay. I didn't recognize him. Right. So the uh, the space station with the really long name, uh, I thought it was really cool, the whole building a space station on an asteroid. Oh, yeah. That was cool. And the whole idea that's still, what, 100 years later or some long period of time later, we still got monitoring stations along the neutral zone like that. I thought that was – I thought that was cool. Makes sense. But you would think oh, yeah. that they would already have some sort of def- ships Automated. defending them and stuff. Just seemed odd that it seemed like the, the Yorktown was like the first one that's come to help defend them. Yeah. I I was just thinking that the monitoring station should have more oh, than, right, right, than right. just one ship assigned to it. Right? Well, okay. Okay. So – Because this I, is their first defense against – the well, pennies. I don't think they gave enough information to know all the, you know, to know what their normal process is. Yes, there is kind of a lonely posting out on these stations, but you got to figure that on a regular basis, starships are coming out to patrol it. I mean, how many times, you know, is Picard or uh, Kirk, you know, dispatched, you know, patrolling the neutral zone, whatever. Um, so it, they probably don't get ships there very often, but they probably do get ships going out there every once in a while. Right. Um, but the idea that they would have multiple stations like this established in asteroids, I agree. Very cool. And that they'd have people in them. It's like, do you, I know that's very Star Trekian, you know, not to have computers do things, but. Wouldn't you think you could get most of that work done uh, without people there? Automation? And like, I mean, with the amazingness of uh, subspace communication that allows you to communicate throughout the galaxy almost instantaneously, which is kind of like a miracle thing in itself. um, You don't need people. You could have a live feed. I mean, almost. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, but then that could be intercepted and they would Well, okay, so Yeah, okay Well, now I hear what you're saying So that that's very Star Trekian. It's just eh. I just don't think it's very practical Or well, not only Star Trekian. I mean, that was That was the way it was back when these shows were made Yeah, but Yeah, probably But also Roddenberry said He wants people there he wants people controlling the ships. He wants people calling the shots rather than having even even he seems to want things very let's not let's use technology as tools. Let's not use them to be anything more than that. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. So you're saying in that time period there wasn't much in the way of computers that could do things like that. Exactly. But at that time period, there were tons of examples of science fiction stories, novels, etc. Maybe not TV shows, but tons of examples of novels that did talk about very advanced computer systems that were able to have artificial intelligence that could think as good or even better than humans. Our Daniel Ovilaw in the Foundation series. There was all kinds of things where Automation was being used more than what Star Trek ever did. Right. Just not on TV. You're right. I guess I guess to Ron Mary's point, it makes it for a better show when you can go to a, 
a space station and then have to solve a murder mystery or something as opposed to just going in there to uh, do some tech work. (laughs) (laughs) I I could not agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. That's right. So art depiction-wise, the – and just the whole logic of it. I did not dig the blinking of the cloaking device to attract the Romulan's attention. Oh, right. It, 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 in, in the artwork, shows the Constitution-class ship, and it's like zebra stripe. So there's a stripe of it being cloaked and then a stripe of it not being cloaked. Oh, yeah. I hated that. Yeah, but that's not blinking. That's, you know... Uh, and, and do they have that much control over the cloaking device that you can only show part of yourself? Or, or that was just exactly how he felt like um, – how they felt like depicting it because right. they, 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 there is no video. Right. It says flicker at a half second. So to me when I read that, it's literally flickering. But exactly. The, the entire ship's visible. The entire ship is invisible, yeah. not stripes of it look, being visible and invisible. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was that was an interesting choice. Not so sure I would have made it. <laughs> and then I did not get the whole uh, gas cloud thing. Um, I mean, the so the Romulans. I mean, I guess it's like chafe or something where they just threw out a bunch of this sparkly stuff, and the Yorktown was able to dodge it. Is that is that what that happened, or am I missing something? Uh, I'm not 100% sure either. But the idea of spray painting the Invisible Man comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't see something, cool. But if you put something onto it sticky that that, that actually sticks to it and stays the, with you, then maybe you could see it. Is that what they were trying to say? I don't know. That's the way I took it. And it makes yeah. sense. But yeah. it just seemed a little odd. Right. At least it's a little better than those concussion charges that they were using in one of the uh, previous issues. Was that the Romulans one? The Alien Spotlight? Yeah. Right. Where they were using concussion charges. And we went into that way too much in, the, in a previous episode. But, I, I, you know, these different ways of detecting invisible things, um, that's bad. Concussion charges in space. At least this is a little makes a little more sense, but still, right, right. So, like I said, even though I don't agree with it, um, it's still good. I like it. I just it was just a little confusing for me. Yeah. So, how do you like the paint job on those Romulan D sevens? I've never seen that before. I've never seen that before either. But it does look cool. I mean, it kind of yeah, using their old Whoa. scheme, their old painting scheme. I think it's over the top personally, but it does look cool. I mean, they got stuff. They've got even the bird's head, you know, with the beak. At least I think that's what that is, with the beak open um, on the sides of the forward, um, you know, the forward pod of the ship. Right. You know, have that neck come out and then there's the round pod and the thing on top. So they actually have a bird's head, the same color scheme. As the wings and lower body on the bottom of the ship, I when I first saw that, and they, they had like like nine ships on the page. They had twelve had, ships on the page. Is it twelve ships? I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I count. Them. But there's a lot, <laughs> right? And they've all got this this garish color scheme. And I was going like, oh my god, that's a bit. It's cool looking, but that's kind of over the top. 
Right, but it fits in with their original design. I, I agree. Although interesting how we never saw a paint job like that in uh, in the TV series. Right. So when we started seeing Romulan ships, you, we hear they're using Klingon designs. Um, that's great, but they didn't have any unique markings on them, at least that they showed on the TV show. And maybe, again, that's just budget. Right. Because it was really just old Klingon footage. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and reusing it. <laughs> or maybe the same model. Um, and then filming new things. But the main point is they didn't bother painting it. Right. But speaking of reusing, the, this shot, the, the 12 ships yeah. are exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, they're literally, he drew one and then used Photoshop or whatever to make it look like 12. Yeah. Because they're all in the exact same angle. They have, every line is exactly the same. Right. Although I will say that at least he tilted one of them. Right, the the one that you only see the upper the 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 just the nacelle. Yeah, that one is unique. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right because that's a slightly different viewpoint. But uh, uh, but also the one on the back right towards the middle. That guy looks like he he rotated it slightly. Same picture, but just rotated it slightly to the right. Whatever. Good yeah, point, yeah. though. Splitting hairs, but the, the main point is, yeah, it, it looks cool. Oh, it looks great. But I was never a big fan of that paint job on the original uh, Balance of Terror. Yeah, I mean, I I like the ships not having you know birds painted on them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but if you if you take a look at that original Romulan design, it's yeah. got a big the middle of the ship uh, where the main part of the ship. Uh, Without the pylons and the engines, mm-hmm. the nacelles. Oh, sorry, nacelles. Um, that's kind of a big piece of white, right? Right. So if you didn't put anything on the bottom, it'd probably be kind of boring. Right. They probably did it because they wanted it to not look like a, a Federation ship with a saucer section and the sails, right? So. Right. But I'm going to tell you one thing that I wish they would have done, what? and it's always kind of bothered me as far as Star Trek goes, is that in the Balance of Terror, they call it a, a bird of prey, right? They call that right. little ship a bird of prey, and it looks like a bird, right? Because right. they, they painted the big bird on it. Um, and the Klingons in the original series had the giant you know, D7, these-looking ships, right? They never had anything other than those. Right. But then when they started making the movies – Suddenly, the Klingons now had a smaller ship that looked like a bird, and they called a bird of prey. Ah. So when when the Praetor is talking about his new ship, I'm like, oh, I hope it's the movie version of the bird of prey. And then – because that makes sense that the Romulans would build a ship that looked like a bird because that was – that kind of harks back to their original design. Right. So I was like, I hope that it's the bird of prey – that we know as is the Klingon bird of prey, and then that John Byrne's going to like twist it, saying, "Yes, the Romulans started using the D7s, but then they made a smaller version that's more maneuverable, and then the Klingons ended up starting to use <laughs> their design." <laughs> I was hoping, hoping, hoping that they were going to go with it, <laughs> but they didn't. Donovan, not everything has to be explained. <laughs> well, explain that to me. Why, although why you, although birds... you and Byrne sure do like to do it. But why why did the Romulans why did the Klingons start using bird themed ships? I don't know. All of a sudden, I don't know. All bad guys do that in the Star Trek universe. All of them. 
<laughs> not at the beginning. <laughs> well, okay. Well, what they call them? They just called them um, what? Battle cruisers. I mean, what? The Klingons. That is right. No, they. But these ships don't look like birds, whereas the bird of prey, the the Klingon bird of prey, did. I mean, it even has like yeah. a. The feathery looking look, but it's not painted uh, on there. Just the ship actually yeah. kind of has that look because of how the the pylons and the engine go down. It's kind of like like the wings in a downward right motion, so and it's got a neck, and it's got a yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I I always thought that that looked more like a you know that looked more like a cross between the Romulan and the Klingon ships than the Klingon ship itself. Yeah, I don't know. It was again. It was just me trying to. Uh, justify why the Klingons started using bird-themed stuff. Right. Um, you could be right. But I never thought about that. But one thing I did think about is the fact that the Commodore's chief engineer is confusing to me. Oh, really? Why? Well, I, I'm maybe it's just my fault and there's two guys here. But... Um, page 10, there's a guy at the engineering station on the bridge named Carlos, and, and his lines are pretty much like the chief engineer. Uh, but the chief, but he's got a blue shirt on. Right. And the chief engineer that we met at the, earlier in the, uh, issue, his name was Juan. And he did have a red shirt, as he should. So, at the beginning of the issue, red shirt, Juan. In the middle, later in the book, and, and throughout the rest of the book, there's a guy that kind of looks like him, because he's got dark hair, and he almost looks a little bit McCoyish. And he's talking like he's the engineer, but he's got a blue shirt. And his name is Carlos. So yeah, maybe I his name... Carlos was the science station. Right. Well, okay. Um, I thought that was the engineering station where Scotty normally is, because I'm looking at the page right now. So the Commodore, of course, is in her chair. Then directly to the right, as you come out, well, to the right of the turbo lift. I thought that was the engineering station, and that Spock's sciences station is like to the left. Which, if you came out of the turbo lift and you went directly to the left, came out, went to the left, that, I thought, was the engineering section. Right. If you I come agree. out and go to the right, then communications is there with Ohura. And then the science station. And then the science station with Spock. Right. Okay, so uh, 10. Page 10 in the CBR. Okay, yeah, I see. And so you got, you got the first one. Not the, uh, the first page... The first panel. So, so, the, so the very she's first. To the science station. Exactly, and, the and that's panel, fine. She's talking to the engineering station. Exactly. So it's a guy yep. in a blue shirt, though, not yep. red shirt. Right. Confusion. Yep. And the I guy's know. talking about he's talking about engineering kind of stuff. So again, right. it sounds like he's the engineer, um, and he's got dark hair like, uh, like Carlos had at the beginning of the issue, but Carlos had a red shirt there, right? Which made more sense. A good point. Or no, I'm sorry, Juan was at the beginning, and then Carlos was at the end. And who knows? Maybe his name was Juan Carlos. I don't know. And <laughs> they just got the color of the shirt wrong. Maybe. It just confused me. It is, con it is confusing. 
And even if it wasn't the same guy, he shouldn't have a blue shirt on if he's an engineer. If he's an engineer, right. right. Okay. Yeah, but then later, the guy at the at the science station is actually the one that's doing the blinking of the the cloak and stuff like that, which would be, to me, more of the engineer than than the science guy. Right? Um, or maybe she just says engineer, but she's kind of looking over at the engineer station, so never mind. Yeah, so engineer, Carlos, can you hold the boat together? And then the guy that, that speaks back is at the engineering station with a blue shirt, and mm-hmm. he talks about that. Yep, yep. Now, you're talking about the cloak thing? Yeah, never mind. Don't worry about the cloak thing. I was wrong. Okay. Anyway, so that was confusing. Yeah, um, so the Mega Romulan ship. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Mega Romulan ship, which we're uh, exposed to at the end. Um, I mean, it's all, I mean, it's big. So it almost reminds me of like uh, the J.J. Abrams reboot Enterprise. Okay. Right. This thing Just is in its big. Massiveness. In its massiveness. So um, it's kind of like Burns reworking of the original uh, Romulan Bird of Prey. Uh, into this big, massive thing just reminded me of J.J. J. J. Abrams' reboot. Wouldn't you have rather have seen? Wouldn't you have liked to have seen some sort of nods to the next generation Romulan craft, though? Like maybe having that secondary hull underneath or something like that, just to kind of give it a nod that that's the direction they're going to. You know, I honestly don't think Byrne has ever watched a next gen episode. <laughs> I think he's boycotted them. Yes, I, I completely agree. <laughs> you would think that you'd have some forward movement in ship design. Something different. But no, it's just a mega version of the old. Well, actually, no. If you look closely, you see that there are things that look like it's a little different. Right. In the new mega ship. But it mostly just looks like the old one. Right. Just without the paint job. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but that new that next gen Romulan ship design, although the head kind of looking thing is a little cheesy, I like that ship design. It's a pretty cool looking ship. I think I think that's one of my favorite ships. Well, come on. Okay, I agree. It's very cool. I like how they've got the the nacelles and then like 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 the two thing like the almost the dual pylons. That's also you know part of the core of the ship and and then the. Anyway, I think it's a very cool-looking ship. But if you really look at the front of it, it's a big head. Yeah, exactly. A bird of prey. Much better than just painting a bird on a saucer sack. Granted, I'm just saying. Whatever. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got to say about this one. Yeah, same here. I liked it. Filled in a lot of the questions we had for the first issue. Right. Okay, let's, let's wrap this up, shall we? And to find out how this all ends in Romulan's Schism, issue number three. Published date, November 2009. Writer and art, well, it's the same people. The primary cover and retailer and set of covers have that same layout of the previous two covers, but in this one, the Praetor is in the center, and Kor and the Commodore flank him. This issue must be mostly told from the Praetor's and or Romulan standpoint, which indeed turns out to be the case. Cover is by John Byrne. The Praetor's pregnant wife, Aline, 
says to her attendants she has not heard from the Praetor since he left space dock six hours ago. Indeed, the Praetor, in his precious megaship, comes upon the forward section of Kor's ship, and it's about to plunge into the bridge of the Yorktown. The Praetor makes an unexpected decision. Kor and four of his crew, and the Commodore and six of her bridge crew, appear on an unfamiliar transporter pad next to each other. Everyone is shocked, but one of the Klingons goes on instinct and disrupts one of the Commodore's people with his gun. A Romulan guard shoots and kills the murderous Klingon while ordering the rest of the Klingons to drop their weapons or die. Kor screams, It's a Romulan trap! Kill them! Klingons take out two Romulan guards. The Commodore orders her people to hit the deck. Kor is left alone with multiple Romulan guns pointed point-blank at him. Kor says he will show how Klingons die. The Praetor screams, Stop! He talks Kor down, and in the process makes it very clear to the Commodore that Klingons and Romulans are in cahoots. Cut to Koloth and his ship, who is trying to confirm the D7 fragments are indeed what's left of Kor's ship. They suddenly see a second ship, suddenly uncloaked and joined to the D7's forward section. A Starfleet ship? Starfleet has cloaking technology? The Yorktown disengages itself from the D7 and slowly begins moving away. The Emperor's daughter tells them to blast the Federation ship to dust. Koloth says no. They must find out what happened here first. Scans show the Federation ship is significantly damaged. Power fluctuations all over the ship. Meanwhile, on the Yorktown, the Commodore's number one is on the auxiliary bridge where all control has been successfully rerouted. They do have shields, weapons, and even the cloak functional, but with the chief engineer gone, shuffling power to those systems is difficult. When number one gets the report the new Klingon ship has their weapons fully charged, he orders evasive maneuvers. Koloth decides to to disable them and fires on the Yorktown's nacelles. Significant damage to the shields. They are able to cloak again and get away temporarily. Meanwhile, on the Romulan megaship, running cloaked, the Praetor says to not intervene, just watch for now. He returns below, where big, nasty Romulans and wife-beaters are pounding on the Commodore. Knuckles reports to the Praetor she is resisting conventional interrogation methods and suggests using the Klingon mind sifter. The Praetor says, not yet, and takes his try with the Commodore. But all she gives him is name, rank, and Starfleet ID number. They bring in a young female lieutenant and tie her down next to the Commodore. They will work on her for a while to pry the required information out of the Commodore. The Praetor asks again, Where is the Enterprise? Where is James T. Kirk? Meanwhile in the Yorktown, number one is in engineering, working with the engineering staff to speed their ability to switch power between systems. He is called back to the auxiliary bridge. The eight Romulan warbirds that originally attacked them are approaching fast. Koloth turns to face them and tells the Romulan task force commander to stand down or be immediately fired upon. The Romulan commander asks if that is any way to treat an ally. 
he tells Koloth they are chasing a Federation vessel and will claim their prize. Meanwhile, the lieutenant has been badly beaten, but tells the Commodore not to tell them a thing. The Praetor calls Kirk a coward and a murderer, and the Commodore viciously retorts, saying Kirk is one of the bravest and most heroic commanders Starfleet has ever seen. The Praetor is called back to the bridge with the report that the the Romulan task force has arrived on the scene and the lone Klingon ship is attacking them. Before the Praetor can decide whether or not to join the fray, three Federation ships drop out of warp and join in the fight. They attack the Romulan warbirds. The Praetor is told none of the three ships are the Enterprise. The Klingon attacks the Federation ships too. This is madness! The Praetor gives the order to drop Cloak and show their new power. Koloth attacks them too! Meanwhile, in the megaship's brig, Kor is cowering, is crowing about how Koloth must be behind the attacks they are magically hearing through the void of space. The Starfleet crew, who are in the same cell as Kor, tell him he does not know anything. The Yorktown is still out there, and they could be behind the attack. Despite shields on the megaship likely being up, the Federation prisoners start to dematerialize. They rematerialize on the Constitution, and the Commodore and Lieutenant are there too. Despite her injuries, the Commodore heads for the bridge. Once on the bridge, she finds out the Yorktown is functional. Then suddenly all ship controls become too hot to touch. The Organians! A bearded humanoid image appears on the bridge of all ships. The image of an Organian speaks to them and says they have been lax in their imposition of, of a peaceful coexistence. They hoped that all had learned their lesson, so intervention was no longer needed. They were wrong. The Organian says he is ending the conflict and enforcing the peace treaty you all agreed to. The Praetor angrily says he agreed to nothing. He has no part in this weakness. The Organian says he does. He opens the Praetor's mind to the fact that the Klingons have been playing the Romulans as a clueless pawn in a plan to attack and weaken the Federation. The Klingons seeded the seeds of distrust towards the Federation. The Praetor says it was Kirk who started this. The coward killed his father! The Praetor's mind is open further to see that Kirk defeated his father honorably. It was his father beaten in combat, who decided to, de to destroy his own ship. The Praetor grabs his head in the realization of how wrong he was, how many of his own people have died or suffered for a lie. He collapses to the ground, saying no repeatedly. Later on Kronos, the Emperor kills his daughter for her treachery. Only through clever lies by Kor is he and Koloth saved from death in Koloth's case, and 70 years on a forced labor planet in Kor's case. They live to fight Kirk another day. On Romulus, the Empress looks upon her once great husband. He is quite mad and unlikely to ever emerge from it. She banishes all Klingons from Romulan space and terminates the alliance. The end. So that's why we don't ever see Romulans again until the next generation. <laughs> yes, yes, isn't that interesting? So, 
I thought it was a great story arc. It fills in, good. Yeah, it fills in so many of the blanks, um, but also stood, I thought, as a compelling story on its own. Right. Well, I do think you needed to read the other, the Alien Spotlight and the Hollow Crown. Yes. To get the full effect. Yep. And unfortunately, if you were just buying these books off the stand, there's nothing in the book itself that says, oh, by the way, you probably should have read these other books, which is right. why we had a little bit of the confusion when we were uh, picking books to read for the for the podcast itself. Right. But in the end, I, I think it was nice that we grouped these together. Very good call, Donovan. Right. Yeah, especially since we were originally going to do them out of order. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we did have a last minute change, but still, in the end, what we put out there in the episodes is in the right order and it's really good we're doing them all together like this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you really feel bad for the 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 praetor. I mean, he he pretty much I mean, he he, he his whole life is has been either his mom or his or the Klingons manipulating him in in some way. So even though his mom was trying to do it for the right reasons and he totally was oblivious to what she was trying to do, even she stupid. was trying to manipulate him. Yes, which is stupid. I mean, if you're going to manipulate somebody and and put somebody in power, you should tell them what the plan is. <laughs> right. Anyway. But so. no, great, good, good uh, six-issue arc, I think. Yeah. Uh, I got to say, though, Resorting to the Organians, imposing their their will on the conflict. I, I don't know if that's my... F I guess he had to do it. Because by that point, everything was spinning out of control. You had all, ships from all three of the major powers in the, uh, you know, in the Alpha Quadrant going at it. And it was really going out of control. I guess you had to have the Organians come back. But it's like, ugh, what a crutch. Right. You know, and not only that, so they're reengaged again. The Organians are reengaged again, bigger than ever. And now, they've also included the Romulans in on their their peace enforcement mission. So, again, how did they go away? Right. Yeah. Uh, to kind of your point, you you're, you made an earlier joke about John Burton probably never watched any deep uh, anything after the original series. Yeah. It, it's almost like. This even enforces that even more. So by doing this this story and ending it the way he did, none of the conflict in the movies or the next generation could ever happen, right? Right. So as soon as you know, uh, you know the Doc Brown Klingon, I forgot his name, Kang playing. <laughs> <laughs> as, as soon as he started trying to get Genesis, the Organians should have popped in there. Oh no, you can't do that. I agree. I agree. And but I, 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 as opposed to calling a Doc Brown, I would call him Reverend uh, Jim. Reverend Jim, because <laughs> I'm older, I guess. Or was Taxi at the same time as Back to the Future? I don't know. No, Taxi was way before. Okay, fine. And I'm older, so it all makes sense. Anyway, so uh, yeah, there you go. So what? What's the deal? Anyway, right. Well, maybe there's another story that John Byrne is going to write for us that's going to explain it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I, I'm I'm up for that. Right. Now uh, we haven't got to it yet, but you know we've been reading some of the new visions. So, mm -hmm. and it was just like a little a short story. Some of the newer the newer issues of New Visions have more than one story. Yeah. 
<clears throat> and then when they collected it into a graphic novel, they released yet another little short story into uh, the volume two graphic novel. And in it, he actually has a story where the quote unquote prime Kirk that we see in the TV show and that he depicts in the new visions gets teleported to the uh, gold key era <laughs> or, uh, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. With, you know, all the weird-looking sets and, as you pointed out, you know, people walking around with typewriter backpacks and things like that. Ah! So. <laughs> typewriter. I never call or, it a typewriter What backpacks. do you call it? You call it a... Big square seat? boxes. <laughs> Big, yeah. black, square, awkward-looking, heavy boxes on their back. Yeah. But anyways, just, just to reinforce that, you know, he he does get it, I think, and he, and he uh, definitely is trying to, you know at least tongue-in-cheek way, tie everything together, which I really liked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading that. Right. And and he always brings in uh, Commodore number one, and she always has the sk- same skunk hair, so... <laughs> in his in his mind, that's that's where she ended up after leaving Pike's command. Right. Well, cool. Good for her. Maybe it's like Sulu. You know... You know, in you know, in the great Captain Shadow for so long, it's time that somebody steps out. Right. Anyway, on their own. So, yes, very good, very good. So, you know, when the D seven hit the Yorktown, uh, in issue number one. Or yeah. In this one? Uh, I well, we deal with the aftermath of it. So right. yes, um, I really thought it was going to have a lot more damage than it did. I mean, you have this spaceship that was moving at speed towards the top of the ship. And all it did is like hit the, the bridge and maybe a deck or two down. That's it. I expected more damage. That's still pretty good. That's still a lot of damage. Well, okay. But I mean, it's like the thing was moving fast. Well, okay, I'm not going to belabor the point. Yeah, but, but after after it got chopped in half by the shield, it probably yeah. lost a lot of its speed. Oh, oh, god! <laughs> yeah, right. No? no, no. You you say no, no? Anyway, so anyway, I it was all great, loved it, and really, I have nothing more to say about it except that it's cool. Right now, I, we didn't go back and and find them, but we both noticed that there's quite a few um, lettering. Typos. Lettering typos. Yeah. Uh, and I'm Some not going to go back in things. there, but there was like not was now and, and things like that. So right. Just throw that out there in case somebody was expecting us to call it out. It's there. It happens. We saw it, but. Yeah. All right. I don't have anything else either. So uh, you want to wrap it up? Let's do. Let's wrap it up. All right. So next week we'll be back. We'll do uh, Captain Jellico, Captain's Log Jellico, and we're going to do two alien spotlights. We're going to do. The other Romulans one, which was uh, volume Alien Spotlight Volume 2 Romulans number one, just so that it's really confusing. But it's not John Byrne, so it's not tied in with the story. And then the other Alien Spotlight we'll do is Tribbles, which is a cool. classic Klingons good. era. So should good. be good. It's nice and funny. I like that. You expect that with Tribbles involved. Right. They, got, they got great sense of humor. They do. They tell them the jokes. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully everybody enjoyed this these John Byrne issues, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. 
Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.